Well, every January, it seems like everyone's got some new clothes that they try to wear, and if you're one of those people that my wife likes to make fun of, maybe you try to wear as much of your new clothes all at once. So this, ha- this happens to us. Um, I got a new jacket and some new pants and a new shirt, and my wife was making fun of me that even though it didn't match, I'm like, hey, it's new stuff, so I'm just going to wear all of it at the same time. You ever guilty of this? I've done this before. Uh, and my wife will make fun of you if you do that, if she knows, because she made fun of me. Uh, but it's funny because, you know, once you get the new clothes and you get rid of some of your old stuff, if you've got a closet like mine, it's one of those, like, built-into-the-wall closets. It's not like a walk-in closet. It just has the one, you know, coat rack, and then it's that big, long rack, and everything goes on it. Well, my wife and I share one of those, and I might be a little ashamed to admit it to you, but my clothes take up maybe 55% of the space, and hers take up about, oh, she said 60. Did you hear that? She just corrected me. Uh, 60%, and then like hers take up about 40%. Maybe that's just because my clothes are bigger. Uh, probably just because I have more clothes than my wife, which is kind of uh, scary to say. If you watch the DVR snapshots, you probably already noticed that, that I try to wear different things every day. But uh, when I get new clothes, I try to get rid of some old ones. We make it a deal like, don't buy any more hangers right? Like, if we have a set amount of hangers, if we buy new clothes, then we got to get rid of some old clothes. And uh, although it's not really a big deal to get rid of old clothes, I mean, if I wanted to keep them, I could just put them in a box, or I could just put them somewhere else and wear them. Uh, But ultimately, it's not a huge deal. Now, it would be different for me if my old and my new clothes represented something more than just getting clothes at Christmas time. For instance, if I was a spy, or maybe even a double agent, working for two different governments, it would be a big deal what I chose to wear in the morning. And what I mean by that is if I was on one team and on one side and I kind of forgot I was wearing the wrong uniform and I show up to work working for a different government or someone that they're at war against, that would cost me my life. It's just clothes, but it would mean something for me. Now, the text that we're going to look at this morning, Paul uses clothing as an illustration. He doesn't use the word clothing, but he uses the word that means to take off or to put on. It literally means, it's used in the Greek elsewhere, to say like if someone wants to put on a robe, he uses this phrase. And if you've got to take off a robe or take off certain clothing, he uses the same phrase. And what he's going to say is, it's like you have two sets of clothes. Your old clothes and your new clothes. Now, at Christmas time, it doesn't matter so much, but when it comes to things that are really important, maybe it does matter, and what he's going to say is, you, as a Christian, have old clothes of your old life that you need to put away. Not just put away, but you need to take them off and get rid of them and throw them away. And you've got new clothes, you've got a new lifestyle that you're supposed to live, and every day you need to make choices to put on that new lifestyle. We're going to see it in Ephesians chapter 4, so grab a Bible, everybody, check this out, Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we got some in the back, I'd love for you to grab one, I'll stall for you right now. Ephesians chapter 4, we're looking at verse 17 this morning, all the way through 24. Last time we were together talking about Ephesians was two weeks back, and we said that God has decided that what, that what the church needed was leaders, and it says he gifted the apostles and the prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to do something. So God gave the church these leaders, especially that early church. He gave them people like Peter and James and John and Paul that would share God's word with them. And so, verse 12 had said, to build up or to equip the saints, that's all of us, for the work of the ministry. So in church, who does what? Well, it's not just the pastors or the teachers that do stuff. It's everybody's supposed to do it. But what are we supposed to be trained by? Well, we're supposed to be trained by the pastors and shepherds and teachers and ultimately by the word of God. 
That's what he had just said, so that we'd be mature and built up as Christians. We can't just stay immature Christians. Now, in verse 17, he's going to remind them of who they used to be, and he's going to tell them, you've got to take all that off. Look at verse 17. Paul says to these Christians, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. Using two words to say the same thing, it's called repetition. Right? Usually you do that for emphasis. He says, I say and I testify. Uh, usually if he's just going to say something, I'll say, here's what it is. I'll just say this. But he uses these two words, and I think that's important because what he's going to do is double down and emphasize that what he is about to say comes straight from Jesus. What he's about to say in verses 18 and 19 is something that Jesus would say, something Jesus would agree with. Look at verse number 17. He says, that you, Christians, must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So he says, this is what Jesus has for you. This is his message for you. That you, if you're a Christian, you can't live like you used to live. That's not just Paul's suggestion. That's not just me as your youth pastor saying, hey, you know, I really think this would be best for you. No, this is the words of Jesus. This is a command from him. You can't live like you used to live. Now, that sounds like something Jesus would say. You could imagine him saying, yeah, you can't live in your sin anymore. You need to be righteous or whatever. You might expect him to say that. What you might not expect is for him to say what he goes on to say. He says, in the futility of their minds. These Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Well, remember, there were two groups of people back then, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were people who had God's word and God's promises. Right? They were actually you know, Jewish by culture and by birth. Right? Then the Gentiles just meant everyone else. But in this book... He makes a distinction between the Gentiles are like the non-Christians. Uh, another word that people use to describe that is, is the pagans or people who, they don't know anything about God. It's not like they're, they're Christians. They didn't grow up in church. They didn't know anything about God. Right? He says, don't live like your former self. Now you might say, okay, well, this is just for people who are you know, not raised in church. Well, the reality is every last one of you starts out in your life in a wrong relationship with God. So did I. I did not start out in a right relationship with God just because my parents were in a right relationship with God when I was born. I started out in sin. You started out in sin. That's why in Ephesians 2 it says we're all born dead in sin. So he says don't live like you used to live. Don't live like a Gentile. Then he describes, look at verse 18. He's going to say what his old life was like. He talks about these Gentiles. He says they are darkened in their understanding. Uh, that means they are not thinking straight. Their understanding, their philosophy, it's not as smart as they make it sound. It says they're darkened in their understanding. And it says they are alienated from the life of God. That means they're separated from God. They don't have eternal life with God that he offers through Christ. They're, just, they're separated from God, these non-Christians. Then he says, why? Well, because of the ignorance that is in them. Well, they're already darkened in their understanding. I guess it makes sense that they're ignorant. Ignorant means to not know something. But he, he says they have ignorance in them like it's something inside of them, right? Which to us, you know, ignorance, we usually just think of it as a lack of something. It's a lack of knowledge, right? Well, he goes on to say it's not just a lack of knowledge. It's like a willful lack of knowledge. Look what he says next. He says because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. Here's another way of putting this. These non-Christians that he's talking about, which is true of people in our world today too, and true of some of us, we choose to believe things that are false because we have hard hearts and we don't want to receive the truth. 
It's like we know that some things are true, and we know that Jesus would want us to live a certain way, but we like to say, well, I don't think he really means that. I don't think that really is how we should live. And it's like an ignorance, but it's a chosen ignorance. It's not like you had no idea, and you have some excuse like, oh, I had no idea. It's not like that. It's like a chosen, willful ignorance that he's talking about. Verse number 19, he goes further. He says, they, these non-Christians, have become callous, right? If you were to look at your hands right now, everybody look at their hands. It's kind of weird. But look down at your hands. Um, this is not a palm reading or anything like that. Right? It's not like that. But look at your hands. A lot of you have calluses on your hands. Maybe you have them because you play baseball. And, and on your left hand, if you're a right-handed player, on your left hand, you have a set of calluses right here. If you're a golfer, I'm a golfer. I have a bunch of calluses right here. My ring makes a callus. If I take my ring off, I've got a callus right on the top of it because it's like everything you touch touches that skin right above it, but not beneath it, right? Because it's all protected by the ring. Maybe you're a guitar player and the ends of your fingers are callus because you're used to, you know, playing guitar, you're a bass player, you um, maybe play violin and you've got calluses on your finger. Maybe you're a rock climber. Maybe you do another sport that now, okay, if you've got your hands out, there's places that are rough. Okay, here's what he's saying. It's like their hearts are rough. There's a, there's a layer that protects them from feeling something. Here's another word, insensitive, right? Insensitive because of a toughness. And now sometimes we think of calluses as a good thing, right? They are a good thing, right? If you're a weightlifter and you've got calluses on your hands, that's a good thing because if you don't, you're going to get blisters every time. It's a good thing for our skin because it protects it. It's not a good thing for our hearts. Because with our hearts being callous, what that means is our convictions of right and wrong don't really make a difference for us anymore. It's like when we lie for the first time or we start doing something that we know is wrong and we keep doing it over and over again, then it doesn't become a big deal to us anymore. That's what he's saying non-Christians are like. They're, they're callous in their hearts. Why? He says they do, do that because they have hard hearts, they're callous, and they have given themselves up to sensuality. It's another word for um, sexual behavior that God says is not okay. Right? Passions to do things and say things that are not in accordance with God's word. He says not only that, they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It doesn't say greedy for money, although that's true for some people, it's like the, the, a greedy person. Right? What do they always want? They want more and more and more. They're never satisfied. They're never satisfied until they get more, until they steal more, or until they make more money, right? That's what a greedy person's like, right? This is saying these non-Christians are greedy. They, are, they want so bad to practice every kind of evil, which is why if you look at a person's life and you, you look at them starting out doing little sins, there's always the property of diminishing returns, right? It's just that you need more and more to make you feel the same way, more and more. And then people's sin starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And if there's lies that are told, let's just use that as an example. Once you lie, you've got to keep telling lies to cover your lie. And then you live in a big world that's, that's a bunch of webs of lies, and it's complex. He says, that's what happens when we give ourselves over to sin. So that's a pretty negative picture, right? And he says, you can't live like that anymore. But he does say that's how you used to live. And it's helpful for us this morning to remember, if you are a Christian, that is how you used to live. You, you were like that. Maybe not to the extent of you know, doing as much as some people, but you still were like that, even if you're a Christian. If you're a non-Christian today, that description is an accurate description of what's going on in, in our hearts. We seek to do wrong. That's why it's like you, you are have this constant bent towards doing the wrong thing. You hear a rule that's set out, and you're like, oh, I want to do the opposite of that. Right? Why is that in us? Well, because of our sin. And he says, it's a bad place to be. Verse number 20, look what it says. He says, but that is not 
the way you learned Christ. So he's talking to Christians, remember, he's talking to these Christians, he's saying, look, you learned Christ, you're a disciple of Christ. By the way, the word learned is the word mathetos in Greek, which is the word disciple. He says, that's not how you were discipled in Christ. You know better than that. Not only do you know better, you've practiced better. Verse number 21, assuming that you've heard about him, you heard about Jesus, and were taught in him. Assuming you're real disciples here, as the truth is in Jesus. It's very interesting. In the book of Ephesians, the word Jesus never stands alone except for right here. It usually is in connection with, okay, Christ Jesus, or you know, Jesus Christ. It only stands alone right here because I think Paul's trying to say, you know the truth of how to live, of what to believe, of how to relate to God, it's embodied in what Jesus taught. Right? We can look back at the Gospels for us. Right? For them, they were hearing the stories of Jesus. Right? Now, we have something better. We have the four Gospels that we can read and see what Jesus was like. And we can hear what he said. And we can see how he lived out the truth and how he loved other people. He says, the truth is in Jesus, assuming you've heard and believed in him and have been changed by him. Verse number 22 he says, this is what happens when you're changed. This is what happens when you're growing. He says, you, were learned, you learned this, to put off your old self. That's the image. To take off the old clothes. To say, I'm not going to wear these anymore. I'm taking them off, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Right? The, by the way, deceitful desires, that means desires that lie to you and tell you something, say, this will make you happy, this will be good, I know that this feels like the right thing to do, so you should just do this. When God says that's wrong, that's a deceitful desire. He says, take that all off, be done with that. And, verse number 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Right? Talking about your inner person. He's saying that's what happens. What are the steps of spiritual growth? Well, one, you put off your old self, you say no to your deceitful desires, then your mind, step number two, gets renewed, in your spirit, on the inside. And then, step number three, look at verse 24. He says, to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Which is why, if you've been a Christian for five years, hopefully, you look more like Christ than you did when you were saved for one year. Because God's been working on you, and you're changing to be more like him in two things. In true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness is a word that talks about your outside behavior right? You're, you're righteous. That means the things that you do that are good, your good words, your encouragement, your, the good things that you do, the service for God and his church, or that's righteousness. Holiness is a description of your inward life, your heart, right? your, your purity, your desire to do what's right, your good motivations to glorify God. He says, that's what happens to you. The more you put off, get a renewed mind, and then you put on. What happens? You start looking more righteous on the outside. You start doing more righteous things. And not just that, you're not a hypocrite, just kind of doing things to be seen by others, but you're also growing in inward holiness, wanting to look more like Christ. That's why this passage is one of the best in the entire Bible to talk about the process of spiritual growth. If you ever have a question or you ever wonder or someone ever asks you, what does it look like for me to actually grow spiritually? This is one of the best passages to take them to because it gives such a clear description. Take, take it off get a renewed mind, and then put something else on. This passage is so helpful for Christians um, because it's written to Christians, which, by the way, um, I've said that about some of these passages, but I'm going to make you write down things on your page, and these are things directed to Christians. I still want you to write it down, even if you're not sure where you're at with God, obviously. I want you to keep you know, taking good notes. But the realities of these passages are true for people who are saved and forgiven, people who've understood the gospel, people who understand that God is holy, that they're not, 
that they deserve God's punishment, and people who've fled to Jesus and said, you need to save me, I can't save myself, I can't trust my good works, I'm done. This passage addresses you and tells you what your old life was like and what your new life should be looking like. That's why it's so helpful. Two things, basically, here. The old life and the new life. The old you and the new you. First of all, we're called to look at our old life and say, we can't live like that anymore. Like, to desperately look at that and say, I, I, I hate how I used to live. I'm ashamed of the things I said. Instead of wanting to inch closer to the sin that you left behind, this text says, look at it and say, you can't live like that anymore. Point number one, I'd love for you to write this down. I want you to agree with Jesus about this downward spiral of sin, which is what this text is getting at. It's like the sin gets worse and worse. Right? It's not like when people start a path of sin that they get better and better as they sin or their sin gets more pleasing to God. It's not like that. In fact, it's the opposite. The principle is once you start down a path of sin, it just gets worse as you keep giving yourself to that. It's a downward spiral. And the reason I said agree with Jesus, you might say, wow, where'd that come from? It came from verse 17. In verse 17, if you look back in Ephesians 4, 17, where he says, I say and I testify in the Lord. To say just means to speak, right? But to testify means more than that. To testify, it actually means that you heard something and now you're saying something. So someone who's a witness, it's the same word as witness. Uh, If you're a witness in a courtroom, you testify, which means you saw something, let's say you saw a crime or something was committed, and you stand up on the witness stand and say, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, there's the evidence. Paul is saying, that's what I'm doing in the Lord. Now, the Lord, if you ever see that in the New Testament, uh, specifically in Paul's letters, it almost always, and I mean almost always, is a reference not to God the Father, not to God the Son, but it's usually a reference to or not a reference to God the Spirit, it's usually a reference to God the Son. It's, it's Jesus. So you take the word Lord, draw a straight line, and say, he's talking about Jesus here. So this is something that Jesus would think. And the reason I say this might be interesting to you is you might say and agree, I think Jesus would think sin is bad. But do you think Jesus would describe sin and sinners like this? They have hard hearts. They're callous. They go from bad to worse. They're darkened in their understanding. Could you imagine Jesus saying something like that? And for many of us, the reality is we would never think he would say that. We take a couple of passages where Jesus sounds very kind and nice, and then we take that to say he must have never said anything harsh. And if that's the way you're thinking, let the scripture this morning correct that thinking. That's not true. Jesus would say something harsh, even, guys, even in the most gentle thing he ever said. We read it in our daily Bible reading um, like two days ago, or yesterday, I think. In Matthew 11, when Jesus said, um, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Okay? I will give you rest for your soul. Like That's the kindest thing you could ever hear from Jesus, right? Do you know that in that same passage, you know what he tells them? Learn from me. Be taught by me. He says the word that Paul used in, in verse 20. Mathetos, you need to be a follower of me. You need to learn from me. And then he says, then you get this rest for your soul. Jesus thinks sin is bad. And that's kind of the bottom line. Jesus thinks sin is bad. And you might say, okay, I, I, that sounds like a good proposition. Jesus thinks sin is bad. But how bad do you think Jesus thinks sin is? And that was kind of a complicated sentence, but think that through again. How bad do you think Jesus thinks sin is? How bad? Is it something that people, they're just not responsible for it? Right? That, that's the lie that we're told today, that if you sin, it's because of your mom and dad. 
If you sin, it's because you had a bad upbringing. If you sin or do something wrong, it's only and simply because you have been in a bad situation. Now, I'm not denying that a bad situation makes it harder and worse to sin. I'm not denying that. But the Bible doesn't hold your parents responsible for your sin. The Bible doesn't hold your friends responsible for your sin. The Bible holds, and specifically God, holds us responsible for our own sin. We can't be blame shifters. That's what the first sin in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing that Adam did was he blame shifted. And God said, Where, why'd you eat this, this uh, fruit? And Adam says, well, it's, it's the lady that you gave me. I mean, this woman, Eve, the wife that you made for me, she gave it to me. He immediately blame shifts. And that is a big thing in our culture. If you were to ask people, hey, do you think you sin? One of the first responses that people would make is like, well, yeah, but like so does everybody. And, you know, I really, I learned how to sin from my older brother. And, you know, I sin because my sister, we immediately, immediately go to blame shifting. Jesus lays the, the faults at our door. This text says that people have futile thinking. Uh, the word futile is also a word we don't use very often. Um, that's in verse 17, futility of their thinking. Futility is the word in Greek that they chose to translate the Old Testament book, Ecclesiastes, when that word vanity shows up. When the preacher says vanity of vanity, all is vanity, worthless, meaningless. Futility was the best word that they could choose to translate into Greek, vanity for the Old Testament. So if you were to look up a, a Greek version of the Old Testament and looked at Ecclesiastes 1 and all the chapters of Ecclesiastes, you'd see this word, futility, futility, all is futility. What does that mean? That non-Christians, as smart as they seem to be, and some of them are so smart about so many things, and it's true they are, when it comes to moral things, when it comes to what God thinks, when it comes to right and wrong, when it comes to heaven and hell and the afterlife, when it comes to our standing before God, it's like immediately, all of a sudden, all these smart people end up being not so smart, and you'll hear people who are brilliant in so many areas, but then you ask them these questions about God or about heaven or hell, and it's like they start saying craziness. Why? Well, because this passage says, if you don't embrace what God says, you're futile in your thinking. You could be a really smart person, and so many people who are non-Christians are very smart. He's not saying they're dumb. He's saying, but their thinking is broken. They're doing it wrong. They're not embracing God's truth. For some of us, that's how we are. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul tells um, the wise people there, he says, where's the wise person? Where's the scholar? Where's the debater of this age? He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Right, what does our world say about how to get right with God? Let's just start there. That's just one example. What does our world say about getting right with God? First thing they probably say is, you're already right with God. You need to get right with God. God would just accept you as you are. There's nothing wrong with you. God made you exactly the way you are, which means there's nothing wrong with you. So stop thinking there's a problem. There's not a problem. But then in your heart, you've got this guilt that keeps coming back and telling you, no, there is a problem. No, there is a problem, right? Well, the world's solution to that's broken. It's wrong. It's, it's foolish. He says it's not wise. The next chapter, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, Paul says the natural person. So, how we are naturally. The natural person does not accept or embrace the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Right? Now, that kind of sounds like, ooh, there's a bunch of mystical stuff in Christianity. The point is not that there's a bunch of mystical truth. It's that most people don't understand and embrace as fact what the Bible says about our problem. Here's another example. Okay? There's, there's plenty of examples you can give, but here's one of them. If you talked to somebody and said, hey, do you agree we're all sinners before God? 
they might even say, yeah, I do. And if you were to ask them, well then, if we've got this holy God who's infinite and his glory is perfect, what kind of punishment do you think people like us need from an infinite and perfect God? What do we deserve? What are they going to say? Worldly wisdom. Well, you know, I think God would understand that we do wrong. And maybe, I don't know, maybe some kind of probation period. Maybe he just needs to fix us up for a little bit. And that's all that we deserve. We don't deserve that much you know, punishment. This is another great example of how in the wisdom of the world, you can't get to God. Because God says something else. God says, no, our sin is so bad. It's so egregious before God. Because he's holy and he's infinite, our sin becomes like infinite because it's to an infinite person. That's why the punishment is infinite. Talk to somebody about whether they think heaven and hell will last forever. Most people in their worldly wisdom would say, that doesn't sound right. To, To me, that just doesn't make sense. Well, that's what he's saying here. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. That's why this passage keeps using these blind words, darkened, alienated, ignorance, hardness of heart. Um, there's a story that Jesus um, was a part of in Luke chapter, or John chapter 9. It's a very interesting story. You don't have to turn there, but you can write down John chapter 9, verses 39 to 41. John 9, uh, it's the story where Jesus heals a blind man. This man's been blind from birth, so everyone knew this is a miracle. Wasn't just some trick that Jesus played. And he heals this blind guy. And this blind guy has this conversation with the Pharisees, the leaders, and there's this back and forth. And the blind guy is a little bit sassy. He's like kind of talking back to the Pharisees. And they're like, Who did this? And the blind guy's like, Oh, well, you know who did it. And they're like, Oh, okay, whatever. Um, are you his follower? And the blind guy says, oh, do you want to become his follower, Pharisees? And there's like, okay, you're terrible. And the Pharisees throw him out and they say, you're so stupid. You're born in sin. You, you would never tell us what to do. And they kick him out. And Jesus meets this guy. Because remember, he was born blind. He heals his blindness. And because of that, Jesus went away immediately. So the guy actually didn't see Jesus when he was healed. Because he couldn't see until right after. So he sees Jesus. They have this interaction. And Jesus says that, you know, your faith has made you well. You're healed. All this stuff, right? At the end, he says this. This is what Jesus says in John 9, 39. He says, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see, people who are blind, that they may see. And those who may see now will become blind. So there's this reversal. Okay. Then he says, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things. The Pharisees heard that. And they said to Jesus, are we also blind? So they're smart enough. They understand what Jesus is getting at. He's calling them people who see that are now blind. And they ask, are we blind? Are you calling us blind? Jesus says something interesting. Verse 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, if you really didn't understand anything about sin, well, then you have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Here's the point. These people understood enough about sin to know that they were guilty. But they wanted to act like, oh, we see, we're fine. But Jesus calls them blind. But these other people who are blind, they start to see. That's the picture that Paul's painting here. He says, we used to be blind. We used to not understand our sin. We understood that there was something wrong about it, but we didn't understand how God could fix that problem. We didn't understand the gospel back then. We didn't understand that um, faith in Jesus is what gets us saved, right? And a lot of people in this room don't actually understand that. You would say that, But if I asked you, hey, why are you a Christian? Why are you saved? You'd start by listing off, well, because my parents. Oh, because, you know, I repented, or I did this, or I did this. The Bible doesn't say it's because of what you did. In fact, it says that you're only saved if Jesus saved you. The right answer to that question, what saving faith says to why am I saved, is 
I'm saved because God saved me, because I trust that Jesus died for me. He died on the cross for me. That's what saving faith says. But even in this room, some of us are blind. I want you to see this better explained than I could explain it. Turn to Romans chapter 1 really fast. Turn to the left in your Bibles. You're in Ephesians 4. Turn to Romans 1. This is the real good description of this blindness and this hardness of heart. The downward spiral, so to speak, of sin. I usually don't have you guys write down something that's like an illustration in the point. I have a spiral staircase in my house, and it's scary because my daughter, I don't want her to go upstairs and start going down the spiral staircase. You're turning to Romans chapter 1 right now, verse 18. Um, It's scary to have her at the top of the stairs because I'm always afraid, like, what happens when she starts to go down the stairs? Um, That would not be good. Uh, It's not like stairs that are a little safer that you can just kind of slide down. It's like a spiral staircase, so it's super dangerous. But one step leads to another, and there's problems. What I'm saying is with sin, it's like we take a couple steps in sin, and we keep going down and down and down and down. It's a downward spiral. Are you in Romans chapter 1 yet, verse 18? Check this out. God's word says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what that means is God has made it pretty clear, even without a Bible, But now that we got the Bible, now it's even more clear that we are sinners before a righteous God. It says, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. If you've listened to my preaching for any amount of time, you probably heard me use this illustration. Suppress the truth is what happens when you look at your trash can in your kitchen and you don't want to take it out. And you're like, you know what I can do? I can take my paper plate right now. I can flip it over and I could just press down the trash a little bit more. And then look at that, voila, a lot of space, right? And then your brother or sister comes along and they don't want to take the trash out because they want your mom to take it out. And they take the paper plate and they're like, you know what? There's a little bit more space here. Let me just take it, flip it over and press it down a little bit more, right? That is the word suppress. So what this text is saying, here's what people do naturally. If they hear the truth, if, if the truth is right there in front of them, Here's what they want to do. They take their sin and they try to press down the truth. Here's the way this happens sometimes at church. We're convicted of our sin. It's like we know we need to confess our sin to God. But then we're like, nope, it can't be that bad. Nope, I can't be that bad. I must not be that bad. No, that can't be true. And then immediately we let that conviction go out of our mind and we press it down more and more. That doesn't get rid of it. That just makes us suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Talking to these these non-Christians. These are people who don't have a Bible, by the way. He's saying, for his invisible attributes, namely, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. All you gotta do is look around, look at the world, and you start to grasp, well, something could not have come from nothing, so there must be someone or something that this all came from, and if we can think, and if we can understand beauty, and if we can even creatively make beauty, there must be someone who did that. If we know right from wrong, there must be someone who made us, who defined right and wrong. And Paul says people just, you don't even need a Bible to understand that. People understand that. They should, at least. And it says because of that, they have no excuse. In other words, God judges people for what they know, not for what they don't know, right? That's True for all of us. Verse number 21 says, for although they knew God, these are are non-Christians. They don't know God like the Jews knew God. 
Right? The Jews knew God because they looked at you know, the scrolls and they could see, okay, well, God talked to Moses. He's talking about people who are non-Christians. Although they knew something about God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Same phrase from Ephesians 4. Right? Their, their thinking got broken, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Right? Darkened heart, futile thinking, those are the same phrases that Paul used in Ephesians 4. What does it mean? Well, how does that happen? Well, when we know God is there, and we, because of our love for sin, we reject the truth of God, or we want to put it in the corner of our life, and we don't want to embrace it. Jesus put it like this in John chapter 3. He says, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Um, that is a good summary of why some people here today, maybe you, are not a Christian because you love the darkness, because you love your sin. Sometimes we come to church and we act like, oh man, I want to stop lying. Oh, I want to stop lusting. Oh, I want to stop being anxious. Oh, I want to stop doing this. But then when we're at home and when it's nighttime, instead of hating that sin as much as we would say in small groups, we feed that sin. One famous pastor talked about having little pet sins that we keep in our house, right? It's a good analogy. It's like you've got a pet. You can come to church and you can complain about your pet. Oh, the pet pees on everything. I hate the pet. Oh, but then you go home and you feed it and you give it a little water, and you give it a little shelter, and, and you only go to it sometimes, and you start feeding that sin over and over again. That's how a lot of people do it. And they think because of, you know, their good things that they say at church, that that represents their heart, but the reality is just not the, the case. They love their sin. Maybe you love your sin. Claiming to be wise, verse number 22, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images re resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, that's a description of these people who in these temples would like bow down to these sculptures of big animals. And, you know, you could look up the Greek gods and you could see weird shaped animals that people bow down to, the idols, right? And you could look at that and say, well, at least I don't do that. Well, the reality is many of us go home from church and we bow down to different idols of popularity and of success and our sports. And for some of us, not even things that are real, just the pixels on our screen and those are our gods. And that's what we worship. And we say no to God, the real God, the living God, the one that made you, gave you your spirit, gave you your talents, gave you your family. We say no to him so we can have some pixels that we want or some success that we think we might have. We're just as foolish if we do that. Verse number 24, what happens next? Well, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. What happens next? Well, you say no to God, right? Then what starts to happen? Then you start sinning in ways of using your body, right? First Corinthians 6 says the, the kind of sin we're talking about there is now sexual sin. Now we're going from just lying and, and being anxious and being angry to now you start to step into some big boy sins, some big girl sins. Now you're, now you're committing sexual immorality. That's what happens. It starts with lust. It starts with looking. It starts with pornography or masturbation. And that's where it starts. And then you keep getting enslaved and addicted to those things. And before you know it, you're so far down the rabbit hole of sexual sin that this verse will be true of you. God gave you up. Because at the beginning, it like hurt your conscience and you, you, you hated it at the beginning. It was shameful. But then you just kept doing it over and over again. Or you kept pursuing it more and more. I think you didn't think it was a big deal. And at some point, as verse 32 says, you become an advocate of it. 
You need to be accepted and you try to push that everyone should accept that sin. Whatever your particular sin is there, says God gives people up, gives people over. Verse number 26, he goes even further. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Right? So we're still talking about sexual sin here, but look at the kind of sexual sin that he references. He says, for their women exchange natural relations, natural sexual relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Um, You know what that's talking about? (laughs) You don't have to be a genius, right? We could probably teach that to the fourth graders and they start to understand because of how prevalent that is in our world today. It's talking about homosexuality. And you might say, well, you know, are you saying that the more I commit sin, I'm going to be led to that? Not necessarily. What I'm saying is that is down the staircase of sin. As you go further and further, as you get removed further from what God says, and you just consume yourself with what I want and what I feel like. Right? By the way, if you think that the Bible um, has a specific you know, gripe against homosexuality, just realize that um, any of your sexual sins that you keep pursuing, it does not stay in what it is. It will always go to more. Just read the story um, last week of, of a guy who started with pornography and then committed adultery when he got married because he wasn't happy enough, and then he molested his daughter, right? And then was in jail, right? And you think, well, I would never do that. Well, that, I would never do that. Okay, well, do you understand how sin works? It doesn't stay where you want to keep it. It keeps pushing you further, further and further, that's why even with sexual sin, the Bible says it's different than other kinds of sin. Do you know that the Bible says that? 1 Corinthians 6, it says it's different. Right? So it's not the same as lying. It's not the same as anger. Right? Although those are still sin and those are still bad, it's, it's a different kind of sin. And the Bible says because you're sinning with your body and even against your body. That's why it says receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Right? Some of us, if you got really honest, right, and you'd probably never tell me this, but if you're really honest, and I asked you, like, what, what do you feel like doing sexually? You'd say, you'd list off a whole bunch of things that would lead to you receiving the due penalty of your error in yourself. In other words, um, I've been on college campuses, and I did a set of interviews one time asking people about the hookup culture in college, the sorority life, the, the fraternities, the party culture. I literally asked all these people who are part of it. And we asked them, okay, when did you get into this? How much have you been wanting to do this? And they say, oh, from the time I was in high school. I really wanted to do this. And then you start asking them, well, how happy does it make you? Almost all of them. Almost all of them, without fail. When we were asking them, we interviewed people in the morning, right? Not on Friday night, but you know, on like a Tuesday morning. Almost every last one of them said, I, I kind of hate it. But I keep doing it because I'm only happy when I'm doing the sin. They didn't use the word sin, right? But I'm only happy when I'm, when I'm doing it. I'm only happy when I'm drinking. I'm only happy when I'm partying. And it's like all the time in between, I'm actually like really lonely. Well, you know, you've had 50 sexual partners in the last month, but you're lonely, right? That seems like an odd paradox, right? You're really popular and people like you and you're the life of the party, yet in between, you're depressed? How? I mean, it doesn't make sense. Well, it does make sense because of what this says. People receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Some of us are pursuing things, whether it be sexual things or party lifestyles, that will kill us. But you want it anyway. And the text is not saying, oh, I don't understand why you'd want it. 
it makes sense why you want it. All throughout the Bible, sexual sin is, is presented as a big deal. People are always committing sexual sin, right? You think you, you're the first, or you think, you think this modern times is the first, right? Have you ever read the book of Numbers? Where the people of Israel, God's people, who seem to be doing well, they make this golden calf, and, and they, they turn their whole group into this big sex party, right? It's like, that's in the Bible. That's in the book of Numbers, right? It, it's there. Um, it's not the first generation. You wonder why these people pursued the... Um, the idolatry that they pursued, have you ever read the book of Ezekiel? Right? The, the graven images that people were prostrating themselves before? Like, you ever thought about that, what that is? Right? All this idolatry was always tied up in sexual sin. You read the book of 1 Corinthians and it says, don't go to the temple prostitutes. Right? Well, it's because the sin of sex was always intertwined with the sin of idolatry. In the Old Testament, Baal and Ashtoreth, right? The, Baal was the fertility god. You know why the Israelites keep going after Baal? because they got to do whatever they wanted sexually. Right? It's not like this is the first time, right? And again, as teenagers, we start to think, man, am I weird? Is it different? No, it is not the first time that people have, because of their desire to do what's wrong, gone after things. For example, in Proverbs chapter seven, the father tells a story to his son about a guy who pursues sexual sin. And what he says to him at the end of this, Proverbs seven twenty one, he says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. So this is a story about a guy being seduced by a girl, but the same thing could be true uh, reverse. It says, with smooth talk, she compels him. This is Proverbs 7, 21. And all at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, and as a bird rushes into a trap, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, oh sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Before your feet turn aside to a place you shouldn't go, or your eyes turn aside to a place you shouldn't go, or your phone goes to a place where it shouldn't go, or your computer goes to a place where it shouldn't go, he says, don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her path, so your feet and everything else. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Take everyone who's fallen victim not, not a victim of ignorance, right? But take everyone who has fallen to sexual sin and put them all in one group. That's a big group. Powerful people. Less than powerful people. Poor people, rich people. Kings and generals. Inventors and scientists. Musicians and architects. People that you would admire. People that you think are the scum of the earth. They, but they're all in this one big group. Many, many a group has been slain. Her house is the way to Sheol. That means hell. Down to the chambers of death. The Bible is overtly clear about this, which is why Romans 1 is clear about it, why we need to be clear about it. You need to agree with Jesus about this downward spiral of sin and say, yeah, it could get me too. And by the way, if you're a Christian and you think, man, I would never do any of that, right? just remember that you probably would if God didn't stop you. The Bible teaches that God has a restraining grace where he keeps us from doing uh, what we otherwise would do. If God hadn't saved you, and for some of you, he saved you at a younger age, and that's a really good thing, a really, really good thing. Some of you got saved at, uh, around age 12 or 13, and there's certain paths that you didn't walk down that the people who get saved at 18 did walk down. And regardless of your situation, you need to say, okay, I see that sin is more powerful than I thought. I agree with Jesus and obviously what this text is saying, um, what do I do about it? Well, the answer 
ultimately to being stuck in the downward spiral of sin is turning to Christ and he says he will forgive you and pardon you completely. He will take away your sin, but you have to come to him. You have to come to him. The word repentance is a word we use a lot. And what that means is that your life needs to turn around. And for some of you, that's really scary to think I have to stop certain patterns of sin and stop thinking a certain way and stop looking at certain things. Okay, ultimately, right? The point is not to just be done doing those things. The point is that you would trust Christ, be forgiven, and your heart and your life is gonna change, which looks like for you, for some of you who need to be saved, which by the way, there are a lot of people in this room who need to be saved, who keep pushing God away. Some people in this room act like Christians and talk like Christians when they're here, but when they're not here, they don't. And for some of you, it's so bad that you're afraid that if you ever, ever admit anything that you've done, that people will never look at you the same. What you need to hear is what Paul said in Philippians chapter three, whatever gain you had, whatever thing you have at church, whatever reputation you have, he says, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. I'll give it all up. It doesn't matter what my reputation or anything that I'm doing, I'll give it up for the sake of knowing Christ. Ultimately, to be out of the downward spiral of sin is to repent and trust in Christ and be made new. That's why one of the most famous images of becoming a Christian in the Bible is the phrase that people use a lot called being born again. That's a good picture, being made new. What God does to people when they become Christians is he makes them new. He changes their heart from the inside out. Instead of you being some kind of hypocrite who just tries to fix all the outside while your heart's bad, what he does is he works from the inside out. He makes you new. And what Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter four is live like a new person. That's point number two. I want you to live new because Jesus made you new. I told you at the beginning, obviously, these are points really that only Christians can write down with complete sincerity. Um, If you're a non-Christian, I still want you to write this down. But before you worry about, you know, letter A and B and C, what you need to worry about is I need to get right with God and I can get right with God. You, You can only get right with God because Jesus made it available. So many of us think that we're in control and we think that, you know, whenever I want to get saved, I'll just tell God, okay, now's my time. It's like hitting an elevator button, right? It's not like that. That's why this passage in Romans 1 says God gives people up to their sin. You realize that for a lot of people, the window of salvation ends when they're young because they're never going to think about it when they're old. They get conviction from the Spirit when they're 15, but by the time they're 17, they don't care, right? Ultimately, the Bible's clear about that. But for those of us who are new, listen to what Paul says here. Galatians chapter two, verse 20, write that down. Galatians 2, 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Right? You might say, well, he hasn't actually been crucified with Christ yet. I mean, did he die? No, he hadn't died, but what he's saying is, my old life is dead. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says something similar in Romans 13, verse 11. He says, besides this, you know that the time, that the hour has come for you, Christians, to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we had first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. It's the same take on and, or take off and put on imagery, right? He says, let us, Christians, walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and in sexual immorality and sensuality. You think the Bible doesn't talk about that? Yeah, there's nothing that could happen on your college campus that the Bible hasn't already talked about. Not in quarreling or jealousy, relationship problems. 
but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Starve your flesh. That's, that's letter A. Ultimately, what I want you to do, the new life that we're talking about, is stop giving into your sin. That's the first step. Live new, because Jesus made you new. How do you do that? Well, first step is just stop giving into your sin. I love the picture in Romans 13, 14. Make no provision for the flesh. Stop putting out the dog food for that pet sin in your life. Stop pouring the bowl and putting a little water in and, and giving strength to your sin to continue. That's why the Bible says things like cut it off. Whether it's about sexual immorality, he says flee from it. Don't keep it in your pocket or on an app on your phone. Don't keep it. Flee it. Get rid of it. Get as far away as you can. And then make it so that you can't put it back on. Proverbs 7 talks about not giving into sin. Romans 6 also talks about this. Paul says in Romans 6, verses 6 all the way to 14, it's this big, long passage, which is a good one to look at. I think you're looking at it in small groups. Um, yes, you are. Point, question number two, you look at it in small groups. It says our old life has been crucified. So, verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Um, that's what you have to do. If you're a Christian, you need to wake up every day and say, I am dead to my sin. I want to be lazy today. I want to be angry today. I want to lie today. I want to lust today. There's things that I have desires to do, but I'm dead to that. I'm dead to it. But I'm alive to God. The life I now live in the flesh, I live according to the Son of God. Even Christians, right, stop giving into sin. It's not just a non-Christian thing. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, is another big, long section I'm not going to turn you to. It's a good one to look up on your own. But in that section... Paul tells these Christians who are really growing, he says, hey, keep growing more and more. Seek to please the Lord in everything. And remember that this is the will of God for your life. This is what God wants for you, your sanctification. The next half of that verse is that you would abstain from sexual immorality. And then he goes on to talk about, hey, if there's sexual immorality going on in the church, if there's a guy in the church that is trying to get a girl in the church to commit sexual immorality, here's what he says. God sees, and God is an avenger of these things. God will not let you get away with it, right? You might think that you've gotten away with it, or that you pulled someone else in your sin, and that, oh, it'll all be secret. He says, no, God is an avenger of these things. The best thing for us to do is to come forward and to confess and to repent. Stop giving in to sin. Back in the passage of Ephesians 4, it says, put off your old self. That's the stop giving in to sin. But then it says, be renewed in your, the spirit of your mind. So he's saying the battleground for all of this is not with your hands and your feet, which is, by the way, why some of you think, man, you know, I, I would just, I would stop being anxious if this thing was taken out of my life, if this person wasn't there, or I would stop lusting if I didn't keep seeing this one person, right? The answer is not simply in changing the circumstances of your life. That's part of it. That's not the ultimate answer. The ultimate answer is that you would start thinking differently, that your mind would be changed. Letter B, study God's truth, right? Really simple. Stop giving into sin, study God's truth. That's verse 23. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. He was talking to God. His prayer request for you is that you would hear his words and be more holy because of his word in you. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Some of you wonder why you keep giving in to sexual sin, and then I can um, say, well, what are you looking at? What are you watching? What are you putting right in front of you? What kind of music are you listening to? What do the words say? 
right? I know some of you think that the words don't matter or the music that you listen to. Um, that's no offense, but that's just foolish thinking, right? That's immature. Kid, kids say that kind of stuff. Oh, it doesn't affect me. It doesn't bother me. That's not true. Um, even the way that God made music, the spiritual connection, I mean, like, the, the words that you listen to matter. The things that you watch matter. Some of you guys might struggle with cursing, and you might say, man, I just want to stop saying bad words. Why do I keep saying these bad words? And then I say, okay, let's look at everything that you listen to this week. Let's look at every video you watch this week. Is it there? Oh, I bet it is. Oh, there it is. Oh, there it is again. Oh, there it is again. And maybe it's there more than you realize. The principle, we talk about this in the partner's manual, like garbage in, garbage comes out. You put garbage in your eyes, in your ears, in your heart, guess what comes out? Garbage. You want righteousness and holiness like this passage talks about to, to come out of your life and to come out of your mouth? Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 12? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You got someone with a nasty mouth, all that means is, man, you got a nasty heart. It's not like the heart's good and the mouth is bad, right? No, nasty mouth means you got a nasty heart according to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, and we, all Christians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That means the more you see God or behold, the word behold means to see, obviously not with your eyeballs, right? But the more you understand of God, the more you study his attributes, the more you understand his holiness, the more you study Christ and look at his life and you're reading the gospels and you're hearing what he says, the more you see of Christ, guess what God does? God takes that in your mind and he starts transforming you from one degree of glory to another, right? There's this upward trajectory of your growth. And then it says, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. One of the few times the word Lord is referencing the Spirit of God, but he says it here. Uh, this comes from God's Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit, you might say, oh man, how does he grow us? Well, he grows you when you have God's truth in your heart, in your life, and you keep focusing on God. God's Spirit takes that and now starts shaping you to make you more like that. Uh, the Bible does not say that God's Spirit shapes you and sanctifies you while you are just completely passive. If you don't do anything, he'll just do it. He doesn't say that. He says he will complete the good work in one day, but there's an active participation we have in this process called sanctification. Put off, renew your mind, put on, okay? Letter C, start doing godly things. How do you live new? Because Jesus made you new. Well, stop giving into sin. Study God's truth. Start doing godly things. Very simple outline. You probably could have written that on your own, right? You didn't need me to tell you that from verses 22, 23, 24. But I made it so simple because I'd love for you to think about it and even be able to repeat that. How do I grow? Well, stop giving into sin. Study God's truth. Start doing godly things. The text says that we're made in the image of God, the image and likeness of God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were breaking God's law. And although the image of God stayed with all of us, which is why whether you're Christian or not, you are made in God's image, which is an amazing truth. Genesis 9, 6 says that even after the fall, we still have God's image. Um, but the problem is we're not actually living like we are made in the image of God until God changes us. The reality is there's one who lived perfectly in accordance with being made in the image of God, and that's Jesus, right? He lived perfectly. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the only one who did it perfectly. But here's what happens for you and me. When we grow in Christ, we get changed little by little by little. That doesn't mean the image of God gets added to us. It just means we actually start living the way that God made us to live. 
That's why Christians are ultimately the only people on the planet who are actually living life the way they're supposed to, in right relationship with God, and then what happens after that. Then the good works and the, the charity and the thing follows, and the kindness and the love, as we grow to be like Christ. Colossians 3.9 says, Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in our minds, after the image of its creator. Right? You look more and more like Christ the more you spend time thinking about him. You look new. You act new. Because God did make you new. But he's renewing you. I know that's kind of an odd paradox, right? It's like, well, if I'm born again, why am I not all new at once? Well, because this is how God set it up for us. That we'd even take part in the sanctification process. This might sound unnatural or hard. But you think back even to point number one and think, man, sin is still enticing. It's still... um, Sometimes sounds good. Maybe not when you put it like what Romans 1 puts it like, but you know, there are times we feel that way. That's true. But the second point right here would be an impossible burden for you. Impossible. If you're not actually made new. You can't make yourself new. You have to go to God to make you new. And even as someone who is made new, you gotta continually seek this from God because God is the one who makes us new. Even in the text, the renewing of your mind, it doesn't say that you would renew your own mind. It's a passive. It says that your mind would be renewed, like someone is doing it to you, right? Someone is renewing your mind. That's God. Ultimately, it's possible because God makes it possible for us. I want to pray right now that we take this seriously and that some of us will get right with God as we need to, even today. Let me pray for that right now. God, we know that your word is clear about sin. We know it's clear about our temptation, and if we're all honest, We all have moments and times where we do seek sin as we shouldn't, and I pray that we would take it to heart, what Ephesians 4 says. Pray for the people who are hearing my voice right now who love their sin and are keeping their pet sins unconfessed. Pray that as Christians we would confess our sins to one another and be healed. I also pray for the people who don't seek you and don't want to know you. I pray that you would even use this truth that they heard this morning to um, shake their thinking and shake them out of the sleep that they're in. Thank you for offering us salvation. You could just shake us out of our slumber and then just tell us we're condemned, but you do something so much better than that. You offer us salvation in your son. You allow us to come to you. You allow us to submit to you and you give us the gift of, of faith in your son pray that you would make that happen for more students today. We trust that you'll do that. We trust that you want to do that. We trust that you get glory through that. We plead on, on True North's behalf today. Please continue to save. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.